Good morning, everyone. And Good morning. Thank you for being here again on a sunny summer day. And a special thank you uh, to all of you who were here for early Zazen. That was a really nice surprise. In the past, sometimes it's just Mado and I for the 10 o'clock sit, but there were eight people this morning. That's like a record. Um, so this one is very grateful for your presence today. This morning's Dharma talk continues in our theme of exploring the teachings of Koban Chino Roshi, or just Koban, our lineage holder. And it also arrives by way of a special request. Uh, one of our Sangha members has asked precisely three times now for a talk on the relation between Zen practice and the emotions. Um, particularly strong emotions. And some of you are well aware that Buddhism knows its numbers and its lists, especially things that come in three. So at the end of tea, most Sundays, we chant the three refuges. And some people here are sowing and receiving precepts, and some of the precepts they'll receive are the three pure precepts. We also talk about things that get in the way as the three poisons. And I spent most of this weekend thinking a lot about the three marks of existence. Three, 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 three. All the time, everywhere. Um, and of course, we take refuge in the three treasures of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So if you ask three times, you're probably going to get a response. And I can't help but smile. Um, in noticing that the Sangha member who has requested this talk three times is not here today. <laughs> so uh, thank goodness we record these things and they're available as a podcast. Um, we love you, Sherry. We hope you are well and safe wherever you are and that when you have a chance, you can listen to this. This is just for you. <laughs> so what do the teachings say about strong emotions? And how do we as Zen practitioners or the Zen curious understand the place of strong emotions in our lives? Um, are we encouraged to ignore them, uh, to do away with them? Are we supposed to become a kind of Zen robot? Or are we just supposed to, in the parlance of our times, be Zen about it? man. It's advice you often hear from people, especially when they learn that you wear silly robes like these. Just be zen about it, man. What are you getting so angry for? Sometimes we hear of zen with muscles or muscular Buddhism. And the question I want to explore this morning, is there also a place for something that we might call zen with passion or passionate Buddhism? Or do we encourage everything's being monotone and gray? So we can begin in many places, but I want to start this morning with what we call here at Oan the 10 clear mind precepts. If you visit another center elsewhere, you'll hear of them as the 10 grave precepts, but we call them the 10 
clear mind precepts. And these precepts form part of the ethical foundation for my life, um, and perhaps your life too. If you happen to be wearing one of these, you might be. <laughs> um, or perhaps you're considering it, right? You're thinking about making a commitment and receiving the precepts at some point in the future. And the ninth of the ten clear mind precepts reads, No harboring anger or ill will, dwelling in equanimity. This is Coben's formulation of the precepts. Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in China, expresses this precept in a different way. Bodhidharma wrote that self-nature is subtle and mysterious. In the realm of the selfless dharma, not contriving reality for the self is called the precept of not indulging in anger. And Dogen, our first ancestor in Japan, has yet another way of expressing this precept, and I'll give you a heads up, it's quite different. Dogen wrote, not advancing, not retreating, not real, not empty. There is an ocean of bright clouds. There is an ocean of solemn clouds. And these are all different expressions, especially this last one. But there's one thing in common among them that I want to highlight right off the bat. Not one of these expressions of the ninth precept that deals with anger, and I'm just going to focus on anger today, but maybe that'll provide a template for stronger emotions, says that Zen practitioners never get angry. Not one. Anger is not something absent from our lives. Did anyone not get angry this past week? I know I got angry this past week. Nor do any of these precepts say that anger is not something that should be absent from our lives. It's just fine to get angry. And you will get angry from time to time. And I'm very thankful that it's not something we're encouraged to do away with because I just don't see how that's possible to never get angry about anything ever. My experience doesn't reveal that to be something attainable. So what is absent then, if not the emotion itself? The first expression, Coben's expression of this precept, says that harboring anger is absent. You don't hold on to it. You don't tuck it away secretly and carry it around. I talk sometimes about doing 12-step work, and one thing you're invited to do is create a list of all your resentments, a way of bringing them out into the open can be a pretty revealing process. Bodhidharma says something a little bit different. He comes at this precept from a different angle. He says, we refrain from indulging in anger. 
I've said a moment ago that we're going to get angry in the future. I'll probably get angry later today. I was angry when I got home yesterday. Right. I got a new shaver for my head. I replaced the old one that I've had for like 10 years with this fancy new one. It's got like six rotating discs. And I took it all apart to clean it. And there's one piece that like you can't have on the little hinges, whatever. I put it next to it so think it air dry. You know who picked it up and carried it away and now I can't find it? Osney did. It's like the size of a quarter. We refrain from allowing ourselves to enjoy the pleasure of being angry. At times, being angry is painful, and it's unpleasant, and it's unwelcome, like yesterday when I got home and noticed that little thing was missing. But other times, it can be intoxicating. Sometimes we feel strong when we're angry. We feel powerful when we're angry. You might even feel invincible from time to time when you're angry. I spent um, years teaching Homer's Iliad, um, which is like a case study in indulging in anger. Everyone's angry all the time in this poem, and it's really a virtue that's celebrated because it's all about warriors on a battlefield. Um, and I can just remember so clearly this scene of Achilles getting ready to go duel with Hector, right? Achilles, the mightiest of the Achaeans, and Hector, the mightiest of the Trojans. This is after Hector has killed Achilles' lover and best friend. And like, Hector's no slouch as a warrior, and he's got Zeus at his back. So this is going to be hard, and Achilles is like unfazed. Bring it on, he effectively says. Because his blood's boiling with anger. He feels stronger than he's ever been. We don't do this. Don't be like Achilles, says Bodhidharma. Dogen's expression is different. It's always different. So I'll say it again. Not advancing, not retreating, not real, not empty. There is an ocean of bright clouds. There is an ocean of solemn clouds. I see a koan present in these lines. Not koan so much in a short Zen story, but in a series of questions that present a kind of puzzle or a riddle to us. If I'm not to move towards anger, and I'm not to move away from anger, not advancing, not retreating, what do I do? If anger is not something substantial, nor without substance, it's not real, it's not empty, then what is it? There's this line in a a poem called The Song of the Jewel Mirror Awareness that reads, Turning away and touching are both wrong, for it's like a massive fire. 
And I thought, that's anger. It's like a massive fire. I don't want to touch it because then I'm going to get burned. But I don't want to ignore it either because it's a massive fire. And it could get out of control and burn everything around it. So what do I do? What do you do? That's the question. As I was preparing this talk, I came across an excerpt from a talk by Yasutani Roshi. Yasutani's part of this group of Japanese Zen priests that come over and bring Zen to the West. He comes a little later. And Yasutani was concerned with the way in which academics, those darn pesky professors, <laughs> were interpreting Buddhism and Zen. And he once said the following during a talk. I hear there are fellows who are called professors in Buddhist universities who indiscriminately pour coarse tea into Dogen's Dharma, cheating and bewildering beginners and long-practicing Zen people as well. They are an unforgivable gang of devils, great thieves of heaven and earth, and should be termed vermin in the body of the lion. They do not realize that they are pitiable people slandering the three treasures, and they must fall into hell after their death. That is because they do not go to true masters for guidance and are ruined by mistaken scholastic interpretations of Zen. We cannot regret this too much. Deep breath. If nothing else, we can say that when Yasutani wrote this and said this in a talk, he was angry. But was he harboring his anger? Was he indulging in anger that arose in part from the activities of some professors? It's not clear to me that he was. Although he's angry, he relates to his anger in a particular way. Or better yet, he is that anger in a particular way. What is that way? Sometimes we say that there are different kinds of anger. Um, my students would often want to talk about something called righteous anger. Anger that's felt by those that are on the right, the morally right um, side of things, the kind of anger that the virtuous or the morally excellent person would experience in certain circumstances when witnessing an instance of economic or political or social injustice, for example. But morality is a difficult thing to be right about all the time, at least from where I'm sitting. 
And it wasn't always that way. I spent a lot of my adult life walking around thinking that I knew very clearly where the boundaries, the clear black and white boundaries between right and wrong were. And I also believe that if I was ever pushed into a corner about something, I was clever enough to talk my way out of it. Recently, Mado was talking about trophies in our cases. I have lots of trophies in a case that I don't pay attention to anymore. But I used to throw them out in front of everybody all the time. Look at me. But I'm no longer so confident that I know where the boundaries are, nor do I engage in that sort of behavior anymore. And so I don't know that I really want to talk about righteous anger. Maybe there's another way of understanding what it is that Yasatani was expressing when he said what I read just a moment ago. So let's go back to Bodhidharma. Self-nature is subtle and mysterious. In the realm of the selfless dharma, not contriving reality for the self is called the precept of not indulging in anger. This expression of the precept encourages us to refrain from contriving reality for the self. I see it as an invitation to investigate the causes and conditions of our anger and understand our place in it. Why am I angry in this moment? How is what has happened about me? How is this anger that I feel in this moment about me? I may not feel comfortable offering moral judgments but I am comfortable sharing what I can see within me at some time. What I can tell you about how the shore looks from where my boat happens to be. And here's what I find, right? Oftentimes I get angry because a desire or expectation that I have has been frustrated or appears to have been frustrated. I expected to come home yesterday and find my brand new shaver right where I left it. And it was, except for that one little piece that is detachable, and now it's somewhere downstairs. And I remember another situation, this happened some months ago, I'm driving through downtown State College, which is under construction, just like it is now. And I'm trying to get to the post office, because I want to mail my sewing back to my sewing teacher for inspection. But what's going on? I can't get to the post office because all these side streets are closed because there's construction. Every time I try to turn down a side street, there's a sign that says detour, go to the next side street. And I do that and then it says detour, go to the next one. And it keeps happening. You ever feel like the world is just trying to mess with you and only you? That's what I felt. In that moment, I was like, why are there six detour signs? (laughs) I had this whole story in my head about how some construction worker, who's probably been up since two in the morning, looked over at his buddy and was like, hey, dude, 
in like five hours, there's going to be this guy. And he's going to just be trying to get to the post office to mail his sewing. And this is going to ruin his day. This was the story. And like, this is not how the world works. But here I am, I'm contriving a reality for me, all because of what? I can't handle a few minutes delay in my trip to the post office? Was it really that big a deal? No. But I got all worked up instead of just letting go of my preferences, letting go of my expectations. What we call today in the sutra that we read during service, a disease of the mind, a disease of the mind. It's not the only way in which we, I, become angry. That way has what I sometimes call an outward direction. I'm also talking about my preferences and my expectations, but like I didn't put up all the detour signs in downtown, right? I can also become angry at myself for really anything. Uh, I'm fantastic at becoming angry at myself. And I hear it's something common to many of us. I don't have any data to verify that, but I do remember hearing that on one of the Dalai Lama's first trips to the States, a reporter asked him, what's something that stands out to you about Americans or about culture in the States? And supposedly, the Dalai Lama replied that there's a lot of self-hatred. It's a paraphrase, but it's close enough. Self-hatred, being angry at yourself, being mad at yourself, is an odd thing. At least that's how Coben saw it. Here's what Coben had to say. If someone is angry, but is the only person in the world, meaning they're angry at themselves, because who else would they be angry at? Then they're a little crazy. When you get mad at yourself, that means you are mad at another self. Maybe you turn your face and see yourself, or you see yourself as other. The point is that even if you are alone, this precept applies. I want to spend a little bit of time on this idea that when you're angry at yourself, you're angry at another self, because I find this interesting. So I thought I would focus on something specific. The Dharma talks that I offer on Sundays as part of our Sunday program here. I think everyone in this room is aware that for most of my adult life, I was a teacher, spent over 10 years teaching. 
at the college or the university level. And it was a little rocky at first. I think I taught my first class when I was like 23 and I didn't know what I was doing. But after a couple of years, like I figured it out, kind of. And I would get good reviews from my students. And after enough of these over a period of years, I was like, wow, I'm a great teacher. Awesome, right? I can do this and I can do it well. And then I decided to leave that environment. But I didn't necessarily decide to leave teaching. I'm still teaching here. It's a different environment. It's not a classroom or a lecture hall. It's a zendo. And early on, I thought it would be much the same, right? Never mind the fact that the setting is different and the material is different. Never mind the fact that I'm sitting and not standing. Never mind the fact that I'm wearing robes. That changes things. Teaching is teaching, right? And just as I was this like great teacher on a college campus, so too am I going to be great here. Only I'm not, right? I'm back in this stage of figuring out how do I do this? Teaching from this seat is a lot different and a lot more challenging than I anticipated. And there's a sense in which I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it in part because I have to put myself on display when I'm up here. Instead of hiding behind something. When I was hiding behind a lectern, I was also hiding behind Plato. Or behind Aristotle. Or, in great delight, hiding behind Achilles. He'll take up all the attention in the room. But there's no one to hide behind up here. And poor Mado. Early on, when I first started doing this, every dokusan I would go into after I had given a talk on Sunday was like, Mado, that was the worst talk ever. I'm terrible at this. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but only a little bit. I would be beating myself up because I had unrealistic expectations for myself and I couldn't let go of them. So what's going on when I engage in this sort of behavior? I seem to occupy both the position of the person administering the verbal beating and the person receiving the verbal beating at the same time. The critic is at the same time different from and identical with the object of criticism. And the object of criticism is at the same time different from and identical with the critic. Both different and the same, both self and yet somehow other. I had this image of myself as projecting myself from myself. So there's like this astral projection out there of me that's then turning around and looking me sitting down here and saying, shame on you. And I'm going, I know, I'm so sorry. And then I thought Coben was right. This is crazy. And I can see some of you smiling. And thank goodness you're smiling. 
because I think that's part of the first step towards working with this tendency that at least I have, and maybe you have as well. Laugh at yourself compassionately when you catch yourself doing this. Just as important though, and these are Coben's words now, is to remember that if you become angry, you do not stop being Buddha. Anger appears. That's it. And at that time, you don't need to say to yourself that you should not be getting angry. Just as when you get close to fire, you don't say, it should be cold. And why not? Because it's a very dangerous thing to cover up reality. What is happening within you in that moment, right then and there. If you try to put up the idea that you should not be angry, you're covering up reality. So if you can accept your anger, there's no problem. If you can at times laugh at it, then there's no problem. If you can see at times that you hold your preferences a little too tightly, smile and show yourself some compassion, then there's no problem. If you can let your life be as it is in this moment, then there is no problem. But this does not mean that there is no anger or that there is no passion generally. I'm playing with this idea that perhaps us Zen practitioners are very passionate people because we don't cover up reality. I want to close with this. As I've been learning how to do this over the past year, um, I've heard that at times my talks are rich and sometimes they're difficult to follow. It's not really necessary to follow or understand a talk at all. Um, Reb Anderson once told me, just let my words pass through you and then you can forget all about them. And that was a really wonderful moment. But if you want something to take away and you haven't found something already, then I'll offer this. When it comes to working with strong emotions in our lives, whether it's just anger or any other strong emotion, sadness, grief, bouts of depression, just continue practicing. Just continue sitting, walking, chanting, bowing, praying. Continue washing the dishes, folding the laundry, mowing the lawn, weeding the meditation trail. Just continue engaging your whole body and mind with what is immediate. 
with what is right here and with what is happening right now. And perhaps most importantly, um, trust that you can do this. Have faith and have confidence in yourself that you can do this and that you're doing just fine.